Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 8th, 2017. This is episode 1999 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we've got a good one for you today because it's Monday show, so that means you helped to write it. This is our listener feedback show. This is where you send emails to me uh, to ask me questions or to tell me about things that are going on that you want me to comment on in the world. You send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And uh, put TSPC in the subject line, and it will be more likely to get through the screening process. The other step to take to make sure you get through the screening process is ask your question or make your point in one or two sentences, and then give me the details. Uh, hit the return key once in a while. That helps to, uh, the rapid screening that I try to do. That helps me get through things faster as well. So what do we have today? We have, well... As you might imagine, given we had the first ever Granddaddy's Gun meetup uh, Friday and Saturday uh, of this uh, last weekend, I am going to give you a bit of an AAR, tell you how things went down, what it was like, and uh, why you should consider planning one of your own. You absolutely should. It was, uh, it was awesome. We have uh, some very basic prepping paying off for a listener. Uh, California now wants to tax spacecraft by the mile. Yeah. If you launch a spacecraft in California, they want to tax you by the mile the craft travels. I saw this on Facebook. I'm, I'm grateful the person sent it in to me because I thought it was from The Onion or something. I just didn't pay any attention to it. Turns out, nope. Where do you hear why they want to do it that way? Uh, converting low-grade forest into pasture on a Savannah model. We have that. Developing content for a podcast or a website. Running chickens while establishing trees. And selling a bug out location. More changes to YouTube's monetization platform. And this one, not really a big deal, but I think it's showing more and more where YouTube is uh, headed in the future. And for you content providers, that's going to be important to know. And when is the when is the right time to start monetizing a content-based business? All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1999 because the episode is 1999. And what do we have for you today? We have the Columbine Massacre and the Video Game Violence by Alex Shrugged. We have the Legrand Case by Southpaw Ben. And we have Dr. Death Gets 10 Years, My Mother-in-Law Gets Life by Alex Shrugged. Notable births this year, Isaac Hempstead White, who is Ben Stark on HBO's Game of Thrones. Chandler Riggs, who is Call Grimes, the kid in The Walking Dead. 
Notable deaths this year. DeForest Kelly, age 79, stomach cancer. Dr. Leonard McCoy on Star Trek, the original series. Madeline Kahn, age 57, of ovarian cancer. She was Lily von Stupp in Blazing Saddles. George C. Scott, age 71, died of a blood vessel burst. He was most famous for his depiction of General Patton. Iron Eyes Cody, age 94, who simply died of old age. He was the crying Indian in the TV anti-littering campaign. Alex Shrug says, I met him when I attended an Indian circle dance uh, many years ago. Uh, this year in film, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, although criticized, it is by far the highest grossing film for this year. The Sixth Sense, I See Dead People. Great movie, scared the pants off me, says Alex Shrugged. I remember seeing that movie with my wife. And they, I, it had been out long enough that I didn't know what the twist was, but there was, there's a big twist in it. And I, rem, I remember at one point, um, I leaned over to my wife and I said, real quiet, I whispered in her ear, I said, I figured it out. And she says, shut up. So I did. And then we went out to dinner after that movie. My wife and I are big enough. We're going to do dinner and a movie. We don't do dinner and a movie. We do a movie and dinner. Because then you have a really cool thing to talk about at dinner. You just saw a movie, and it's just fun that way, you know? Um, and, of course, then she said that she didn't believe that I had figured it out. And I said, well, I couldn't tell you because you told me to shut up. <laughs> it was a good night. Uh, the Matrix, follow the white rabbit and then take the red pill to learn the truth. 1999, the Matrix comes out. And Wild Wild West, The Mummy, Galaxy Quest, a parody of Star Trek. This year in uh, TV, Farscape. The Sopranos, The West Wing, and in cartoons, Family Guy, Futurama, and SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes, 1999 is the birth year of SpongeBob. This year in music, Baby One More Time by Britney Spears, uh, You Were Mine by the Dixie Chicks, and How Do You Like Me Now by Toby Keith. And in music this year, Napster's peer-to-peer -peer music sharing begins. Lawsuits also begin. It shuts down two years later. Its brand name will be bought by Best Buy. And, of course, there was a number of other things out there that took its place quickly, like LimeWire, etc. This year in video games, Silent Hill, EverQuest, Soul Calibur, and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Oh, wait a minute. Back to music. I'm going to talk about Britney Spears' song for a second. Like, Jack Spearco's going to talk about Britney Spears. Yeah, I'm not a fan or anything, but I, I, I do know this one little tidbit of trivia about that song. In that song, at one point, she says, Hit Me Baby, right? In fact, the original title was Hit Me Baby One More Time, and they took the Hit Me Out because they the, the record label's like, it just might be taken the wrong way. So we're, what does that mean? It could mean, you know, being abused, like being in some kind of sadomasochistic relate where you beat each other. Or it could, you know, hit. I'm not going to go there because some of you listen to your kids. You can explain if you want to, but, you know, you, you can take a, a sexual connotation to that. I'll leave it at that. Um, turns out... Um, it's more like hit, like hit me up, like call me. Um, the, the, the song was actually written by guys that were either Swedish or I don't, uh, Swiss, Swiss or Swedish or something like that. Um, and they had extrapolated that, you know, so, so you might tell somebody hit me up, like to give you a call or, or catch up with you that hit me would mean like call me. So the song really would be directly translated, Call Me Baby One More Time. Why would I bother to tell you that in a history segment? Because it's important when somebody says, well, so-and-so said this, that you know the context. 
and you know the point from which it was being said. That's a perfect example there. Another song that taught us that was I Want a New Drug by Huey Lewis so much earlier in the 80s when people were running around screaming it was endorsing drugs. Idiots. Anyway, uh, in other news, Boris Yeltsin in 99 resigns as president of Russia, leaving Putin in charge. NATO bombs Yugoslavia, first time NATO has actually attacked a sovereign country. John F. Kennedy dies this year because it's John F. Kennedy Jr. He crashes his plane into the waters near Martha's Vineyard, killing himself, his wife, and his sister. New pilot flying VFR at night over the water. Guaranteed disaster, but it was just a short hop. And the Aggie bonfire collapses, killing 12. It's a six-story tower of logs, a substantial construction project, a sad day. We fly the maroon and white uh, at my house, says Alex Shrugged. Um, <clears throat> out of these different sub subjects, I'm going to read for you Dr. Death Gets 10 Years. He is called Dr. Death. His name is Jack Kevorkian. He is a pathologist. That is a guy in a morgue. He has been promoting euthanasia, the gentle ending of life. He advertises in the newspaper as a death counselor. He drives up his beat-up VW van with the curtains drawn. He sets up a cocktail of drugs on a rack. He calls this apparatus his Thanturin, or drug death machine. He sets up a harmless saline drip, and the patient hits a button. The drip switches to sodium pentothal, a strong sedative. That is followed by a drug to stop the heart. Um, FYI, I'm not telling you what it is because I don't want to frighten anyone. It's the same drug I take twice a day in small doses. But the large dose, it in a large dose, it would kill me. And not incidentally, it would be difficult for the coroner to detect, so I'm careful not to piss off my wife. I know exactly what drug that is, by the way. I won't say it either, since Alex seems not to want it said. Uh, back to the doctor. It is against the law at this time to help someone commit suicide. But the authorities have had a tough time bringing Dr. Kevorki into justice. That is, until he goes on 60 Minutes. He demonstrates his machine on TV using Thomas York, 52, who's in the final stages of Lou Gehrig's disease. Oddly, Kevorkian changes this procedure and administers the final injection himself. That is murder. Kevorkian is 70 years old. He will save, serve eight years of a 10-year sentence, but he has already made his point. Euthanasia is now on the political agenda. My take by Alex Shrug. Personally, I didn't like Kevorkian because he was some kind of death freak, but in principle, he did things correctly. He saw the law that didn't make sense to him. He disobeyed the law in order to bring the case to court, but the authorities refused to convict him or lacked evidence to do so, and they decided they had better things to do. Then Kevorkian made that error on 60 Minutes, which I suspect was not an error. He technically murdered that man. This forced the government to act and brought the issue forward. He walked out of the courtroom in his prison and into prison serene and happy. He had done what he had come to do. Doctor-assisted suicide was on the agenda, and some states passed laws allowing it. Currently, Texas law prohibits it, prohibits it, but withholding care is perfectly legal in Texas with the patient's consent. Thus, when it looked as if my mother-in-law might die in a hospital, she signed a do-not-resuscitate order. We discussed it as a family with clergy present, and we all agreed. But then a Texas social worker confirmed it with my mother-in-law after we left to make sure we hadn't pressured her. That pissed me off as if the state thought we couldn't handle it. But upon reflection, it was a good idea. Trust but verify. By the way, my mother-in-law lived another year. False alarm. Um, I actually have no problem with the concept of choosing to end your own life when there is no hope for any quality of life and any outcome other than death. 
Um, there are certain conditions, illnesses, and states that a human being can be in that it's a matter of weeks or days or months, but death is certain. So is pain and misery and suffering and anguish and just wanting to be gone. And I think it is a cruel, heartless thing to prevent someone from being able to choose to take that path if they want to. And I know there's all kinds of people out there that, that have a, a totally different view on that because, well, God should decide. Well, we're well past where God decides where we live and where we die, aren't we? Because we have ways of extending life now well beyond what was possible even 50 years ago, including keeping people alive that really should just be allowed to go. Now, that is where DNR, do not resuscitate, comes in. But the problem with that is you put people in a position where they actually choose to starve to death while they still can think and talk and speak because they just want to be let go. That's sick. Um, I don't think that Kevorkian was a, a really awesome guy or anything like that, but I do think he made some very specific points. And one of the things he said to me that has a huge impact on how I think Uh, and not so much about this issue itself, but about things in general and being willing to question that which everybody just knows to be true, that, that no one will question, and anybody who does question is ridiculed for, was during an interview with Neil Cavuto. Here's what he said. He said, when you transplant a heart from a baboon into a baby, as we did, and you say the body of the baby is sacred, does that profane heart from the baboon become sacred when you place it in the body? Or when you take out a gallbladder and you throw it into the garbage, is that a sacred gallbladder in the garbage? Or as soon as it's out of the body, does it lose its, its sanctity? You see the silliness of our mythology? Children ask the questions I'm asking now. The trouble is children get slapped for asking questions like that because they have no defense. But you can't slap me. I can ask the question. It's a logical question. Indeed. Another quote of Jack Kevorkian that comes from a book called Between the Dying, Between the Dying and the Dead um, is this. I gambled and I lost. I failed in securing my options for this choice for myself, but I succeeded in verifying the dark age is still with us. I think that the guy probably did have a little bit of a tweaked out brain, a fascination with death. But I do feel that he did do something that many of us say people should do, but won't do for ourselves. We won't take the risk for ourselves. And that is the willingness to unbe a law, not obey a law that you view as unjust. That is a libertarian principle. Now, I don't know if Kevorkian was an out-and-out libertarian or if he was just libertarian on this issue. Um, but it is, it is exactly what people should be doing. Here's my thing. I still don't get why he pushed the button himself on 60 Minutes. I know what Alex is saying, like that baited the government into trying him. But wouldn't it have been better to not push the button yourself and let the gentleman that said he wanted it done do it himself? Because here's why. Either, either the government would have chose not to prosecute him, which would have neutered the law shown it to have no teeth. Or they would have had to prosecute him under those circumstances, and that would have brought the actual issue to the court versus a separate issue of, hey, you murdered the guy. 
it's not you know premeditated malice based murder because the guy wanted to die and agreed to it etc and everybody saw exactly how it happened etc um, but yet you did it so I don't know if that was a very good calculation or not I think that no matter what would have happened from a standpoint of being an activist a better decision would have been to not do it I don't know that we'll ever know exactly why he made that decision as far as I know he's not on the record of uh, of telling anybody and he cashed his chips in somewhere I guess around 2011 if I remember correctly so he's not here to tell us anymore but I think there's a lesson there too with activism being smart and calculated in how you make decisions like when you're actually going to commit acts of disobedience and doing it in a way that might actually get you where you want to go and realize the serious risks that you're taking. He also said something that I think most members of this audience would agree with 100%. When your conscience says a law is immoral, don't follow it. I think it's funny that a lot of people that are really opposed to Kevorkian um, because they have a religious view of this actually agree with a great deal of what he says until you bring it to this issue. I just find it interesting. I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong in it. You know my view. I've given it to you. I respect yours even if we disagree. I will tell you this. If it comes down to the point where I ever end up in a situation like that and I decide that I'm checking out, I'm not worried about your opinion at that point. I'm worried about some level of dignity in my time of passing. Uh, with that, let's... Uh, Remind you real quick about the Members Support Brigade today. Hey, if you if you like this show and the work that we do, one of the best ways you can support us is by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast, Members Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll see all the great companies that give you discounts there, and you'll see all the other great benefits that you get. With that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show which, of course, is your feedback and questions and what have you. And the lead story today is not really a question. It's just me telling you what happened this weekend. So um, Friday afternoon, I drove down to a campground just right near Corsicana, Texas, and uh, spent a couple days with some really great people. I think we had about 40 uh, people show up to the first uh, Granddaddy's Gun Club uh, event, plus kids, and there were a lot of kids. I would say there were at least a dozen kids running around. And the kids had a blast. I think the kids had as much fun uh, just running around the campground as they did at the range. And the way we ran it was pretty cool. Um, everybody got there, set their camp up on the first day. Some people got there pretty early. Some people got there pretty late. Uh, we had a bit of a campfire going, but not really anything real big deal. Drank some beers and stuff and, and hung out. Everybody cooked their own food. A lot of people you know, cooked a little extra and shared and stuff, too. Uh, kind of got to know each other. The next day, we woke up. Uh, again, people were responsible for their own breakfast. So we had we, we cooked a ton of bacon. David brought just a huge amount of bacon, though. So we we, uh, we got one of the, the young ladies that was there to uh, we conned her into cooking the bacon. Actually, David used uh, rock, paper, scissors to, to end up with her cooking the bacon. So she cooked all the bacon. We had some tortillas and stuff like that. And about noon, you know, we went hot on the range. Before we did that... Um, we gave everybody a really intense safety briefing. We had identified people that were new shooters or very novice shooters for a little bit of extra attention. Uh, not in any kind of negative connotation either. Just like, hey, you know, this person probably could use a little bit of extra, you know, looking out for and a little bit more encouragement so they don't feel intimidated like, oh, I don't want to pick that gun up because that one's complicated or something like that. And, uh, we were, we were hot on the range from about noon till four with a couple of breaks. Um, to go downrange and set up more targets. 
the initial volley, we set up a whole bunch of Tannerite. Uh, so that was fun for people to be shooting exploding targets. We had a gentleman out there with flying drones doing video. He'll be getting the videos to me, and I will be able to uh, get that video stuff out so you guys can see it, uh, including aerial shots of the initial volley with the Tannerite going off. What was really cool is we did a good job of the image I was looking for without really telling anybody. No one was kitted up like a mall ninja or some kind of soldier of fortune, regular people and regular. The only thing that would you know make that person look like they might be out shooting had they walked into a convenience store wearing the same clothing would have been, you know, they had safety glasses and earphones on. Uh, for you know, hearing eye and ear protection. Otherwise, they look like just a bunch of people that you'd see hanging out at the lake fishing or something like that, which is what we want. It's a very family-friendly, open thing. The kids had a blast. Um, and so then we also had a, an automated skeet throw where you put about you know 50 um, clay pigeons in it at once, and it wobbles back and forth, and every so many seconds it's popping out another shot. And uh, we had about, you know at any given time, six guys with shotguns, kind of competing who could get the, the skeet first. And uh, I had I had a blast doing that. I, I beat the hell out of my shoulder uh, on Saturday. I mean, I, really, I was black and blue by the end of between I, I, almost an hour straight of, of shooting skeet and uh, putting up a whole box of hot 306 rounds through my old 1917 uh, Enfield and putting a, a whole box of pretty hot loaded uh, 405 grain flat points through a, a pretty light NEF uh, handy rifle 4570. Uh, I, was, I was pretty bruised and pretty damn happy. And uh, we had a blast. We I fired uh, a 500 uh, uh, handgun, 500 revolver handgun, uh, which wasn't anywhere near as uh, brutal as I expected it to be. It was about shooting like a hot 44. Um, we I got to uh, shoot a 10 millimeter Glock. I'd never shot a 10 millimeter Glock before. That was all right. I don't like Glocks, but it was it was fun anyway. We had dueling trees out there. We had steel silhouette targets. We had bottles full of colored water to blow up, and it was great. And it was just a good time. And uh, we came back, we had dinner, we had a huge campfire, this, this campsite we had was awesome for it. And, uh, you know, by then all the guns are put away, everything's made safe, out comes the adult beverages, everybody's sitting around, kids are playing again, and after dinner, around the campfire, we told stories. It's exactly what I said, we told stories of guns, we told stories of hunting trips, and uh, Pat Rorman uh had two BB guns, and he didn't have a hand-down ceremony, but he gave his two youngest sons, or his two his two of his young sons, because I don't know how many kids he's got. I think he's got like nine now. Um, but two young sons that were old enough to be there and old enough to get their first BB guns, their first BB guns. And uh, so that was kind of the, the only, you know, handing a kid a gun, uh, you know, part of that. But we told a lot of stories, and we kind of reiterated that, this is what it should be about, is telling these stories over and over again so that when we're gone, those stories are repeated and they're handed down with the guns that they go along with. And uh, then, you know, we just ended it, and people stayed up pretty late. I think I was up till about 2.30 and uh, hit the tent and went to sleep and drove home in the morning. Fantastic weekend. It's hard to think of a better way to spend a weekend. And the feedback from some of the people that came that were apprehensive about coming. I'm not sure I should come. Will these people accept me? I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh, one gentleman said, I'm almost 50 years old, and I don't even know the right way to hold a gun. The last time I shot a gun was in scouting. and uh, But did fairly well. Did fairly well. And 
to have a place where you could go where there's nothing but support. And that doesn't, you know, I mean, you still, when somebody says they don't know how to hold the gun, you, you're a little leery with the safety, but, you know, that's a good thing. We had two range officers uh, on duty at all times, uh, occasionally so they could shoot. One of us would relieve them and say, hey, you can go shoot. I'll take care of your half of the range. We had a rifle range and a pistol range. We had everybody sign a waiver. It was cheap to come. us $25. Bucks. Um, David really put the whole thing together. And uh, he went down a different route than I did. He went down on 287, which I should have done looking back now because it's a great gun store along. I can't remember what it's called now, but it's between here and, and Corsicana on 280, Highway 287. And um, <clears throat> they went in, and he said, you know, we got this big thing going on. They, he was buying a bunch of extra ammo to make sure everybody had plenty of ammo to shoot. And initially the guy figured it was probably Boy Scouts. So he was like, yeah, we can do a discount on some ammo for you. They start talking, and he tells them what the, you know. It's Granddaddy's Gun Club thing. Then the guy was a listener to TSP at the gun st store, and gave him a really great deal on the ammo to help support the event. I'll find out the name of that gun store from David, so I can give them some good press for doing that. And I need to get down there because my understanding is just a fantastic store. Um, but you know, here's my big thing for reason for telling you all this. Granddaddy's Gun has picked up you know hundreds and hundreds of members. Uh, there's some activity on the on the uh, groups. A lot of groups have been created, but it hasn't really gotten the traction that I envisioned that it would. I thought people would just go do this. I think now they will. I think now they will. I think when you actually when we get those pictures out and people see what it's like and be able to actually now not just tell talk about telling stories but tell the story of the first one, I think we can get people on board with doing their own. All you need is a safe place to camp. And where you can set up a range. And it doesn't have to be camping. You can set up range days around this too and just do range days. But I'll tell you, I think the best thing would be to do some sort of a camp out. Because it changes the whole dynamic. Nobody's worried about getting home for something else. Everybody knows they're there for you know a day and a half. It's not that long. Um, a couple nights sleeping out in the woods is good for the soul. And one big thing we said, and there were some females there, but we want to really work hard when we do the next one to reach out and bring more females in. We want to be bringing new shooters, female shooters, young shooters uh, to, to this stuff. That's what this is all about. It's about the preservation of our right to keep and bear arms. It is not about the preservation of the government's view of that, but the preservation of the protection of that. The belief that this is a sovereign right. And I, I came up with the concept because I didn't have any other answers. And another, you know, a new version of the NRA is not the answer. Um, marching down the street with, with 100 people that are all dressed like SWAT uh, soldiers uh, with open carry demonstrations is not the answer. Teaching people safe, responsible gun ownership and giving them a comfortable place to learn and interact with others and to network, that's an answer. And making people realize how sacred something like a family-owned gun that's being handed down for generations, that's the answer. The understanding that if a grandfather um, who received a gun from his grandfather hands it to his grandson, they're right there in that second, that one second, you're looking at six generations. Six generations. That's the answer. So please, get over to Granddaddy's Gun. Set up your account. It's completely free. Um, and, and start networking. Look for groups in your area. And just start setting up some meetups. Even if you don't do a full bore one like we did, 
Just get together and, and have a couple drinks, or just get together at the at a p local pistol range, even an indoor one. Everybody bring a gun, shoot, and talk to each other, and then start start scheming about how you can make this happen. Meet those people that are in your area that you don't know on a first name basis yet. You'll find that common bond, and you'll figure out what resources are available so you can do your own. Next up, I want to tell you a, a story. Read an email to you from a listener. I think it's just a fantastic example of practical preparedness and how it pays off. This comes from James. James says, Friday night about 9, our well pump that supplies two houses died. Fortunately, it was repaired by the following evening about 8, so it was a pretty minor inconvenience. During the outage, I was able to supply both households, six people and pets, with drinking water that I had stored in one-gallon jugs. I was also able to use some five-gallon buckets with spouts to pull water from our pond and use to flush toilets. This little bit of preparedness won me big brownie points with the wife and her family. This was a good dry run for our water preps for future potentially worse scenarios like power outages. I will be adding more capabilities and capacity as my time goes on. Thanks for your show. It really does make a difference. P.S. Baby wipes are invaluable in these situations, especially for washing hands. Indeed. Um, <clears throat> you know... I, I keep saying it here and there as we talk about basic preparedness on the show, but it's like the stupidest, cheapest thing you can do for preparedness is to just save some sort of a bottle, uh, either from your own usage or have someone who drinks things that you do not save it for you, uh, fill them up with water and store them. You do not, if you clean a bottle well, which means rinse, unless there's something really bad in there, if it's soda, iced tea, whatever, Fill it with hot water, rinse it out. And what we usually do is this. We do what I just said. We fill it and we wash it out. And then we fill the bottle with hot water. We let it sit in the sink overnight. And what that does, if there's any residualness of the flavor of what was in there kind of like clinging to the plastic in the bottle, it pretty much kills it off. Because we do a lot of uh, cider and we use uh, just bottled uh, apple juice to, uh, to do that. And if you just fill it up, just rinse it out a couple times, fill it up, the water has a kind of like an apple-juiced, aftertaste thing going on. It's not very pleasant. But if you just let the bottle sit in the, the, the sink overnight and then dump it out and fill it up with a fresh water in the morning, uh, use the water your plants if you want to. It certainly isn't going to hurt anything. Um, there's none of that residual smell or taste when you open the bottle to use the water. And uh, the, the apple juice bottles, the one-gallon apple juice bottles are fantastic. The uh, Arizona iced tea bottles are some of the best bottles out there for storing water, and they're very, very heavy-duty. Two-liter soda bottles. Those are probably your three best, butts, uh, bets, best bets. I do not like milk jugs because, well, one, milk is hard to get everything out of, and you can leave some stuff behind, and you can make nastiness for yourself with that, uh, including things that can make you sick. And two, they're thin, and they fail. So I'm not even a big fan of going to the store and buying you know, milk jug-style bottled water by the gallon to store it. I'm a much bigger fan of using these other containers and filling it with water out of your sink. And if you think the water out of your sink is not clean enough to drink, get a Berkey. Don't pay for bottled water. Because most of the bottled water you buy, I don't care what they call, call it, spring water and all natural and blah, blah, blah. Most of it comes from a city water tap. Sometimes it's filtered after that. Sometimes it's not even filtered after that. Uh, Nestle is a huge supplier of bottled water, and they get much of their bottled water from... Lake Michigan. Mmm, yummy. Lake Michigan water. Yep. Uh, it is, it is uh, processed after that, but you get my point. Make sure you're storing up on water. And a big thing, 
have a plan to move larger volumes of water if you have access to it from a swimming pool, a pond, whatever, uh, just like James did here for flushing toilets. Because the last thing you want to do is be taking your good water that you're going to use to drink or brush your teeth or wash your face or do your hair with and using it to flush toilets. On that note, you can use the water that you, let's say you washed your hair, you can dump that in the toilet tank and use that to flush the toilet, use the water twice. That's a good thing to do as well. Uh, but for those of us that have swimming pools and ponds, it's, it's a really easy thing to have, you know, some buckets and having the, uh, the, the, the spigots on the buckets, that's not a bad idea. It prevents you from having to kind of, you know, dump, you know, pool water or whatever into the tank of the toilet. If you dump it straight in the bowl, it'll flush, but I find that, Depending on what's in that bowl, you just might be better off putting it in the put it in the tank. You flush it that way, uh, and then always have a, a full tank so that you can, when you get the next you know need, flush again. So thanks for sharing that with us, man. Um, next up, Len sends me this email, and it says, "If I did not already know the mentality of our politicians, you could think this was a fictional article that was made for the Onion." Our politicians are the cutting edge for figuring out new ways to tax us. This proposed California tax is good news for Texas. A better link to verify this article is at, and there's a link to San Francisco Chronicle and several other articles about this uh, that were provided. I'll link to the San Francisco Chronicle article um, for you guys in the show notes today. Here's what it says. California plans, to, plans for collecting taxes on space flight. Yes, really. Let me read this to you. A Falcon 9, I'm sorry, the earthly convention of paying taxes may soon extend to outer space. If California regulators have anything to say about it, the state's franchise tax board is seeking public comment for its proposal for computing taxes on commercial space transportation companies. I'm going to give them a public comment right now. Stop being a bunch of greedy pricks. There's my public comment. Okay. The space, the private spaceflight industry remains small despite grand ambitions to shuttle everything from tourists to 3D printers into space. But the board says it's created the rules. Listen to this, because I'm not going to read the whole article. This is the only important part in it to tell you the mind of a bureaucrat. The board says it created the rules to give entrepreneurs the confidence that once their businesses really start to take off, California's tax code will be ready to handle them. Are you effing kidding me? Are you can you can you see that being said with a straight freaking face? Like I said, I saw this over the weekend pop up in Facebook yesterday when I got home, and I didn't even read it. I saw it like here and there, like a bunch of different people putting it in their feeds and whatever. And I'm like, I, I, I've seen enough satirical news, and I really thought it was satire. I, I really couldn't believe they were talking about taxing space flight, but no, this is legitimate. Um, and they want to tax it by the mile. They want to come up with a space tax by the mile based on where the spacecraft is actually going to. And it will, it will affect any, any um, spacecraft that's launched from the state of California. Um, I'd like to point out that their biggest competition for this type of a business is in two places, Texas and Florida. Obviously, with links to the United States space program with NASA as it is, but also they're very good states for that. I mean, they have facilities, um, they have the space, no pun intended, uh, and they have very pro-business friendly economies. Like, uh, California has a terrible 
a terrible economy, a terrible system for entrepreneurs. They're literally destroying um, themselves, as far as I'm concerned. And But they actually have a toehold in this because of some resources they have. And it's like, you know, let's, let's make sure that we destroy that too for ourselves and our citizens. The audacity to think that if I'm, you know, Elon Musk and I'm thinking I want better humanity and I want to build SpaceX and I want to turn it into something amazing that we can actually do things that no one's ever even dreamed of doing in space. But my only concern is, will they have a proper tax system in place to tax? I mean, oh my God, whoever it is from California's bureaucracy that actually said those words, you should just be beaten about your head and shoulders with like thin strips of bamboo or something. I mean, really, you, you, you are a waste of skin, You are a waste of skin. Every time you breathe, you are robbing another human being of oxygen that they could use to do something you know, valuable with. Somewhere, to quote Dr. House right from the TV show, there is a tree working tirelessly to produce oxygen so that you can breathe. I believe you owe it an apology. That is what a useless waste of skin you are. The, the arrogance that a person has to have to think that anybody doing such amazing things. I mean, if you think about a lot of you guys who want your own business, you know, you, you're thinking pretty small. Some of you are thinking pretty big. But I, I doubt there's very many of you that are like, I am going to develop spacecraft that go beyond our atmosphere. You have to be a bold son of a bitch to put your, your heart and your soul and your own money into a business to do that. You have to be bold. You have to be brave. You have to have a huge heart to do that. It ain't easy. And, and for someone to think that person needs you to assure them that your tax system will be ready for them when their business takes off, means you're a small-minded twat. You really are. You really are. I, I'm, I'm done with this one. You guys can take it for yourselves as to how arrogant government's becoming and how self-destructive government's becoming. And we'll come back to California for the song of the day, 1999, uh, when we get to the end of the show. So the, uh, the next question I have is from Alex. Alex says, Hi, Jack. I'm wondering what some of the most efficient ways are to convey low-grade forest to pasture. Often you can find this land much cheaper than maintained fields, and someone with more time and and for someone with more time than money, I thought it might be a viable option. Rotational grazing pigs or other livestock. Any issues with the soil after this conversion? Is your best bet to mechanically clear and spread chips over the soil? Thanks for being one of the voices of reason and polluted media. We are bombarded with daily. Alex from Houston. Um, yeah. To a large degree, it, it, it often is the case that you can find low-grade forest and there is some opportunity to convert it to pasture. You're in Houston. Where you're looking around, Alex, there's a lot of, lot of pine. Uh, East Texas is you know, pine tree central. And I think the better option for most people in areas like East Texas 
is timber land that has come off timber lease and is not being maintained. It's not being replanted to be done again. Um, more and more of the cases that land's not being sold. It is simply being replanted for another 15, 18, 20 years when it can then again have another timber harvest on it. But there's still a lot of land like that. The, the, the land was, wasn't a huge timber operation. It was some guy owned 20 acres and it was pretty barren and he leased it to the timber company for a 20 year rotation. They came in and planted the trees. Uh, time finally came. It might have even been sold in between with the timber lease on it and whatever, how the terms went. And the timber company came in and cut down all the trees. And now the guy's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to sell the property. The timber company's like, it's not big enough for us to buy directly. Uh, so bye bye. And he's like, bye bye. And then they sell it off cheap because it's basically just been clear cut. So that's a good place to, uh, to, to, to look as well. In any event, most people would think the best way to convert this would be to go plow it and plant it and, uh, you know, build a pasture and then graze it. You, you actually probably want to get animals on it as quickly as possible and use them to establish the pasture. It's actually very difficult to establish true pasture without animals that eat pasture. I know it seems a little bit backwards. I mean, if I had a piece of land, let's say I had like a, a 20-acre basic square of land, and uh, it had, you know, low, like it had timber and wood and, and trees on it that I, I wouldn't feel bad about taking down. You know, we're not talking about something with, you know, 40-year growth with oaks and poplars and, and, and big, you know, butternuts and stuff like that on it. We're talking about scrubby stuff, you know. Typical of the Texas area, there's a lot of land like this. What I would do first is I would go in, I would do a survey of the land, and I would identify trees in stands of trees that I do not want coming down. This would include areas where it would create an erosion problem. This would include trees that are just exceptional. Because even in scrubby crap, there's usually you know this huge live oak over that's 100 years old, or there's a small stand of pine that's really good bedding habitat for deer, Uh, that would also be a great place for my animals to go rest and get out of the heat or what have you. And I would, I, and I would try to come up with a design of where I wanted trees left, the trees that I wanted left, the stands of trees that I wanted left, where I wanted my pastures, where I wanted my paddocks. And then you, then you target specifically trees for removal. However, often the best way to do this is if, especially if you have someone around you that wouldn't mind, you know, putting their cattle into, uh, into a forested grazing model. For a couple weeks, depending on how many cows they have, it might even be a lot less. You put cattle into a place like that and just Google Greg Judy and, and find his YouTube videos and start watching. He has presentations where you look at this like just like it seems impenetrable woods. And it's some big trees, but it's mostly tangles and gnarls and stuff. And he put the cattle in and it's like open like a park. One day, it's open like a park. And what happens when that goes on is not only do they clear out a lot of that stuff that you would call slash and, and slag and whatever and, and open it up, they also defecate. They eat a lot of stuff that you wouldn't think they will eat, and they mash it into the ground. Now, this is probably not the kind of environment you really want cattle in long-term at first because there's only so much there for them. So you need to move them very swiftly through the system. And then you can go in and mechanically open up things with 
you know, whether you're going to do that with a dozer, whether you're going to do that with chainsaws and an excavator. I mean, a really great tool for this is like a, a seven to 12,000 pound excavator if you can get hold of one uh, with a grabber. So it's got not just a, 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 a digger so you can dig and grub out some of the stumps and whatnot, but a grabber so you can move things. Uh, and, I mean, it all depends on the situation, what you're going to do with the long term, what your actual budget is. The concept of, you know, having some massive shredder and, and putting 10 or 20 acres under wood chips, great idea. I think financially it will cost more than just buying land that's already cleared. I don't think it's financially viable at, at the scale we do things. So you're going to do things more with animals, and you can kind of phase it in. You need to be thinking about dam sites. You definitely, on any kind of scale, you want to be putting in some ponds and dams. Uh, whether or not you're going to do swales or not, if you're going to do swales, where they're going to be and why they're going to be there. I mean, it's a pretty big undertaking to do a conversion like this, but it's definitely worth doing. And it's one of those things that I think the actual way forward could change if you bought two equal sized pieces of property that were just on the each was on a different side of the same road because one would have a different landfall and form and have different advantages and disadvantages and things like that one might be steeper one might be flatter one might have a lot of really great sites to put water on and put as much water as you can in systems like this uh, and one might only have a few key points that you know, I don't mean to be you know punning the key point thing there but only a few key points throughout the system that you can actually hold water viably the and, and then you have to look at always I mean it comes down water access structure you don't want to design access out of a system I've seen pe so many people do it they put a swale in it's like okay now how are you going to get vehicles through here and you can usually bring in a culvert you can design or you can fix it Usually it's not a type 1 error, it's like a type 1.5 error. It can be fixed, but you really wish you wouldn't have done it in the first place. And that's why if you don't make that mistake, you always think about how am I going to access different parts of the property, why am I doing what am I doing, what I'm doing, and how I'm going to provide water to these animals, where I'm going to hold water, how I'm going to hold water as high as possible on the landscape so they can move down to other locations. Um, those are the types of things to be thinking about. It, again, though, I think for many of us, if we want have to have that ambition, you know, instead of cutting down trees that eventually will be good trees, looking for land where somebody's already treated out the property and just isn't interested in carrying forward with that model any longer, those make a lot of sense. And the big thing is you don't want pa – pasture is not good pasture if it has no trees. Pasture has a lot of trees in it. The most productive systems in the world – Uh, the most productive land-based terrestrial systems, because the most productive systems are aquatic, um, but the most productive systems on land in the world are savanna systems, which is tree and plain-based systems. And, and all you have to do to see the folly of not doing it that way is think about any great big field you've ever saw. Well, you know, some farmer's got you know 20 head of cattle, and he just has his little block, his little 10-acre block or 20-acre block or whatever it is, and he throws his 20 head there. He just doesn't worry about it. He feeds them and waters them. The cows can move from one end, you know, 20 acres. Ain't that big for a cow to move around on. And there's like this one old-ass oak tree, you know, over in one corner or out in the middle or something like that. One tree they left. And, and the, the area around a tree, there's not a blade of grass under that tree. It's all dark and compacted. Tree's probably sick and dying by now. And in the summer, all day long, where are the cattle? They're under that tree because it's the only tree that gives them shade. So they eat in the morning, they get a drink of water, they go lay under the tree. 
You know, they only move when they're hungry enough to move, and they, they eat mainly in the morning and the evening because that's when the sun's not blazing down on them. You know, if the land falls right, maybe there's a shaded area in the afternoon when the sun starts to go low in the sky that they can use a landform for shade, and they overgraze that. But if we, if, we, if we go in and we leave trees for shade at different places and we paddock shift through it, the pasture comes up really, really fast. So, so that's the model that you've got to be following there. Um, next one uh, is kind of a business question, and it says, What are some best practices for focusing on content first before marketing? Details, I'm starting a podcast after about a full year of paralysis by analysis. I've always figured out how to mechanically. I've, I've already figured out how to mechanically do the show. I've heard a thousand strategies on how to monetize. At this point, I'm more concerned with a few basic points: consistency, value, knowledge, and reliability. Thanks, Kyle from Tennessee. Kyle, do not expect me to help you further your paralysis by analysis. Stop thinking about it and do the damn podcast. Don't worry, I'm going to give you some ideas here. But seriously, you're asking me, what are the best practices? to actually do what you figured out how to do but are not doing. See, this is the same shit. I see it time and time again. And don't get down on yourself for it because I see people that are worth you know millions of dollars doing the same thing in their business in different ways. Well, we got to think about the right practices for this. How about you do it? See, that's practice number one, doing it, doing it. Here's the thing. Don't worry about marketing it. You're going to figure that out, and you're going to do that pretty quick, too. Don't worry about what are the best practices, because you're not going to do best practices. I could put out a book, How to Podcast Correctly Under Best Practices by Dr. Jack Spierko, because I've made myself a doctor, whatever, okay? Because you can do that for a few bucks. And uh, I could write down exactly what you should do, and you're still not going to do it. No matter what I say, no matter what I tell you to do, you're not going to do it the way that I say you're going to do it, and you should. You're going to do it the way that Kyle does it. And you don't know what the hell that is yet, because you're not doing it. Because you're not doing it. So what you need to do, your best practice would be to make up an outline or a partial script or whatever it is on a subject you want to do your podcast on, sit your ass down in a chair, put the microphone close to your mouth, take your recording program of choice, hit record, and start speaking. That is the best practice to putting out a podcast, okay? And I know that I'm going to get shit from people for being too tough on Kyle, and either Kyle's going to appreciate this or he's going to be upset with me for it, okay? But you wanted my answer, and this is the first time I've answered questions like this, and I'm not going to change the answer because the question was phrased differently. The best practice for focusing on content first is the creation of this content that you speak of, yet are not creating. Because it is only through practice that you're going to get good enough for your content to become good enough to do what you want it to do. And no one gives a shit when you start out. Don't worry about anybody listening to the first ten of these things you do. If some people show up and like it, great. If not, it doesn't matter. It's just to get started. It's like saying, look, Jack, I, I want to play baseball. And I've spent a year learning how the game of baseball works. And I've been studying great hitters. And I have watched the way they hold the bat. I have seen how they hold the bat. I've watched how they swing their arms and their hips in the swing. I've learned about the eye-hand coordination that's necessary, focusing on the ball, etc. And I'm ready, finally, after a year, to go hit a baseball. But before I do, 
Can you tell me what the best practices are as I walk up to the plate and hold the bat? Get behind the plate, get somebody to throw a freaking ball at you and swing at it. And you'll look like an idiot and you'll do a terrible job, so do it again. You'll do a little bit better. Because the first time you swing, you're going to be an uncoordinated monkey because somehow you made it to being an adult male without ever swinging a baseball bat at a ball, right? But you notice that kids learn to play baseball really easy? Do you know why? What do I got to do? Hit the ball. Okay, whack. Ball goes three inches. Yay, hit the ball. Okay, let's hit it again. Whack. Ball goes four feet. That one went far. Whack. The ball goes way up in the air. It's not even a good hit. It lands behind them. They're still happy. A month into it, you got a little leaguer that's smacking balls off the tee down the third baseline, running the first like he knows what he's doing. Because he does, because he got behind the plate and hit the ball. See? That's how you got to do this. So the best practice on focusing on content first, focus on the content by creating content. And you know what? This is the same treatment John Pugliano got from me when he came to me, not for a show, but just individually, quite a few years ago, and says, well, uh, I want to do a podcast on you know investing in wealth creation, and it's going to be the Wealth Steading Podcast, and you've been doing this a long time, and I'm a listener, and I'm a fan, and what should I do? Get the software to record the show. You are an expert. You know your material. Start talking about it. Learn to edit it. Learn to publish it and put it on a blog. Get it included in the RSS feeds for things like Stitcher Radio and iTunes. If you don't know how to do it, go how to record a podcast in Audacity on Google. Set up your site and do it. That's exactly what I told him. He's a very successful podcast today. Do you know why? Because he was willing to knock the ball off the tee onto the ground and watch it roll over and get tagged out because he stood there and didn't run the first base. And go, oh, gee, that one, that one sucked. I'll get back in the rotation, get up to swing again. So that's what you got to do, dude. In fact, I said I was going to help you out with more. I'm not. Because that's, that's, that's where you are right now. There's nothing else for me to tell you. Hit the record button. Here's what I'm going to tell you, Kyle. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're serious about this, within 10 days you'll have an episode live. Within 10 days. I was going to say, like, by tomorrow. But I don't know your life, and I don't know if there is a time and place you can record. So I'll give you 10 days. That puts you through a full week. And back around the other side. If you don't have an episode recorded in 10 days, your last year's been wasted. You think that's too tough? The truth is tough sometimes. But the truth is the truth. Push the record button and speak. And I know some of you think I'm a hard ass on stuff like this. But I'm, I'm telling you, it's the only way. It's the only freaking way. There is no way you could sit around for a year trying to figure out how to do a podcast and actually need a year to figure out how to do a podcast. Because when I did my first podcast, I never did a podcast in my life, ever. And I needed the knowledge so that we could deliver a podcast because I told the guy we'd build him a site he could podcast on. And in a week, I had five episodes. Not because I'm special, because I wasn't afraid to fail, because I knew it didn't matter, because I, I knew nobody was going to be paying attention. I did it in a car. And it make, I think some people are like, wow, that's amazing, Jack did it. No, it's not amazing. It's not hard. There's a lot of hard things about it. But actually doing a podcast, not, I didn't say doing a good podcast. Actually doing a, a podcast is pretty easy. 
But there's skills you got to learn. So you do those skills. Think about this. You spend a year of analysis paralysis. A year. Okay? Let's say that you fumbled through it for a year and did one podcast a week. By now, you'd have 50 podcasts. Do you think you'd be pretty good at podcasting by now? Do you think instead of asking me for the, the best practices, the best practices for creating content, you'd just be creating content? You'd be asking me like a specific question instead of a generic question that I really can't answer because there is no answer other than do it? Go for it. Go for it. Swing for the fences. Swing for the fences every time. And when the first the first time you make contact with the ball, it only goes to the pitcher's mound and they throw you out, get back up to bat again. That's your best practice. Next question I have. Dan from Middle Tennessee says, Where can I start to run when can I start to run chickens through an area of newly planted bare root fruit trees? Background, we have about one acre with a slight slope on the front of our property where I planted about 40 fruit trees, apples, apricots, peach, pear, cherry, pawpaw, etc., along with some black locusts and support shrubs, service berry, and false indigo. Well done. The trees were planted last November about 25 to 30 feet apart in clay soil. I would have probably planted them a lot closer, so there's plenty of room for more planting there, but maybe that's the design you want, and that's fine. So that's that's good to go. I have a movable coop with 26 birds that I enclose with 400 feet of electronet fencing. Excellent. My plan is to put a temporary fence around the mulch layer, six-foot diameter of each tree, within the run, and move the birds through the fruit trees. I understand you should not fertilize the trees for the first year. I would think that it would take at least several months for the fertilizing effects to reach the trees. The area is covered with grass and weeds, and I plan to move the birds before the bare spots start. Any thoughts would be appreciated. Thanks for all you do, Dan. Dan, go for it. This, this shit, you're not supposed to fertilize trees. Just stop listening to people that don't really know what they're talking about. These are the same people that tell you not to, to fertilize peppers. And you look at their pepper plants and they're yellow with chlorosis and they're lacking growth. And you have great big plants and they tell you, but you're not going to have a lot of peppers. Dude, you're not going to have a plant by the end of your plant's going to die. Okay? Um, the reasoning behind not fertilizing your trees is that a tree is going to put down more aggressive root systems and uh, seek nutrients uh, at a higher level if you don't fertilize it than if you do fertilize it. Listen, I've planted trees in very thick pots and had them blow a hole through the bottom of the pot. And the tree that, that blew the hole through the bottom of the pot was not hurting for nutrients in the pot because we were fertilizing because it was in a pot. Trees grow roots. That's what they do. And we, we don't need to be worried about over-fertilizing a tree with chickens through a system. If you think about it this way, one of the primary ways Jeff Lawton establishes a food forest isn't that he, great, he puts chickens through that system um, right away after planting it. He puts them there before he plants it. He uses them to tear up the ground. He goes and plants really, really dense right on top of where they just were, you know, for six weeks at a time. So there's nothing wrong with your plan. Um, so you can put temporary fencing around the trees to keep the, the chickens off of them. I would suggest that uh, you will probably be financially better off if you make a couple of the rings, however many you need, like that 400 feet of electro fence is only going to have so many trees inside it at any one time. And when you move the electro net, also move, you know, just, just have a circle of wire of a fence that circles the tree and put it together with like removable zip ties. 
and uh, just you know unzip tie it and just move it. If you go staking at all, like I've seen people do that, like for deer, you they take some stakes, they put them around the tree, and then they run you know six foot of uh, you know horse fence or whatever around the tree. Um, first of all, it's going to make you controlling any weed growth when they're a pain in the ass, and uh, it's going to uh, it, it's going to use a lot more materials than you really think it's going to use. It's it's amazing how much fence goes into a six inch circle, a six foot circle, and to make ten of them, and it's it's a lot of fence and a lot of material. And this the the, uh, the stakes, you know, the, the fence posts are you know six eight bucks a piece, four per tree, starts to add up. So my my real question then is why would you even worry about fencing the trees, and why wouldn't you just move the electro net in because it'll take any contour you want. And just don't let the chickens touch the trees. So you got your, you're going to make a big circle with your electro net. You're coming right toward your, you're going to encompass your apricot tree. Come to the inside of it and go back to the outside of it and continue. I, I wouldn't even fence in the trees at all, even temporarily. I would just use the electro netting to prohibit the, chick, the, the chickens from accessing the trees. Uh, and I, I'd say that, you know, they could go up within four feet of the trees. And if they, they tear up some of the mulch or whatever, you know, unless you have something special planted in there, then I wouldn't let them in at all. Uh, then you just throw a little mulch down after they go, and, and, and don't worry about the fertility aspects at all. It'll be good for them. I'll just put it to you that way. Um, assuming you're moving these birds. If you're going to leave them in one place for a long time before you move them to a second spot, then that's bad for the whole system. I mean, birds ideally should be moved every day. 26 birds in 400 feet. You could probably move them every three or four days or even maybe once a week, but you got to look at what they're doing. You got to look about the, at the amount of work they're doing. Basically, you stick to the one third rule. When they take down the growth by a third, move them. That's, that's, that's the best practice there. Let's go ahead and take another one. The next one's kind of tricky. Um, this is from Renato. Renato says, um, how would you go about selling a remote bug out location? Background, I live in a remote house that I like, but I have a five-year-old kid, and I need to move closer to town. Things are getting complicated living in the mountains. I'm trying to sell the house, but I find that most websites search is done by zip code in their neighborhood. The problem is that no one is looking for a house in my zip code because they don't even know there are houses there. Uh, I am on grid. I, have, I am on grid. I have no cable internet, but I do have cellular internet. There are 17 houses, and the rest of the area is now a nature reserve park. So no more house will ever be built there. It's not a place for the typical family, but ideal for a weekend bug out location because it's the same time far from everything but close to big towns. I learned a lot about real estate listening to you along the years. It is a little overpriced because it's big, five bedrooms, brick, concrete construction. I have attached a picture so you can see the house. I will. I have also built a website to try to sell the house since brokers are morons, and he has a link to it. P.S. I live in Brazil, but almost the same rules apply. Just pretend it's a house close to a big U.S. town, but stuck in the middle of a mountain park. It is one hour from Sao Paulo, a huge, rich city, 25 minutes from a medium town below the mountain. Thanks for all you do, Renato, a MSB member from Brazil. Well, um, so... There's a lot going on there. One of the things is you said it's it's overpriced because it's big. So I can tell by some of your writing, I don't mean this in any disrespectful way, but English is probably not your first language, and you're probably much better uh, at 
at English than I would ever be at Spanish or Portuguese. So I, I don't mean it that way. But what I'm trying to make sure is that I'm not picking on you for something that I should interpret differently. If something's overpriced in the true meaning of the word, that means it's priced higher than it should be based on what it is. What I think you mean is expensive is the word you're looking for there because because it's such a big, and it is a big, nice house. So it's more expensive than you might expect from such a remote house. And if that's what you mean, then that's not a problem. You need to find somebody that sees the value that's there. If you mean overpriced, as in I'm selling it for more than I should because I owe a certain amount of money on it and it was a big house and I bought it that way, then you got a problem. Um, if you ever watch shows like Pawn Stars or whatever, uh, any kind of the shows that are on where people sell stuff, And the guy's like, you know, what will you take for it? And the guy's like, oh, I want 20 grand for it. And the other guy's like, nah, uh, best I can do on this is like uh, $7,000. You know, they're that far apart. And they, like, I got more than that into it. Well, that doesn't matter to the buyer. The buyer cares about the subjective value of what it's worth now. So if you mean it that way, then you got to figure out how to put the price where the market will meet you. If you just mean that it's expensive, then you got to find the right kind of people to reach. So here's here's my question then. You're an hour from Sao Paulo, a city with rich people. What kind of person likes a getaway place in the mountains that's only an hour away so they can take any random weekend and just pack the kids up and go there and be off in the mountains? Rich people. Or at least affluent people, upwardly mobile people. It is an ideal house to sell to people that want a second home. Uh, it's the kind of thing I think about when another show that I watch on occasion, because a lot of it's really stupid, but it's, it's fun to watch certain ones. Best to DVR it so you can fast forward through all the crap about people's lives and what they want and they're complaining and just see the houses and what they're listed for as house hunters, including House Hunters International where people are looking for some kind of, I want to build a tourist destination or I want to be able to get away from it all or whatever. It sounds like that kind of a place. So, you know, then you have to say, well, where, where do you reach those people? You know, wh what type of people are these people? And, and I would actually look for a real estate broker that generally sells more expensive real estate in the city that, 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 that the rich people live in. So I would be going to Sao Paulo And I would be looking for an upper-end real estate agent and say, hey, look, I have an incredible opportunity here. If you are spending your days talking to wealthy people that buy real estate, which is what your job is, then you should be letting them know about this and keeping your ear to the, gr the ground. And I would form a relationship with one or two of these types of real estate agents, the really good people. I mean, you... You need to, to kind of get to the point of like looking in Sao Paulo at like the really upper end stuff, the multi-million dollar listings that go fast and find out who that agent is and contact that agent and say, listen, I got something that's a little different than what you're used to. But that, you know, that person that's doing that, do you know what their book of business is like? You know, a person that's been a real estate agent like that, it's been, it's been like a kingpin and it's been doing it for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years in a place like Sao Paulo. They know all the movers and shakers. And people like that are always looking for things like this. So that would be one avenue. Another avenue would be, and I'm not sure you can do this, but, you know, what is the closest zip code to your zip code? Did, uh, did, did people actually do look for houses in? 
And could you accidentally mislist it so that you put the zip code down a little bit wrong? So when somebody finds it, they, oh, wow, look at that. So at least people are seeing it. Um, those are the kind of the, the, the top things that I can think of. I mean, it's how motivated are you to get out there and, and, and meet with people and find people. Because it's just the kind of thing that most people wouldn't know how to look for it just by the fact that, you, I mean, I think the website you put together is great. I can't read it because I don't speak your language. Like I said, you obviously speak mine better than I speak yours. But uh, from what I can see, you did a good job with it. But you need to get it in front of people. So, you know, I can't advise you with search engine optimization, like how to get it listed because I don't, you know, in I don't know what people would look for in Brazil to find what you're trying to find, but a little bit of tweaking that way might work. Um, but in the end, the big thing is it doesn't matter if it's a remote or it doesn't matter if it's a bug out location or whatever. All the rules that I teach you about real estate still apply. People are in the market for real estate. They want something. They buy the best they can afford within the limits of what's available. And you want yours to look a little bit better of everything else is available. The good news. Here's the greatest news of all. You are in such a great position if you can just find the segment of people that want to buy your property. Because there's no more land that's going to be developed into houses. There's only so many houses there. And from what I can tell right now, you got the only one for sale. So, you, you know, I guess the other thing I would say is I would be talking to all of those neighbors that you have. How many did you say that you, you have? You know, 17 houses, in, in, including yours. Those other 16 houses, I'd be knocking on their doors and saying, do you have any friends or family that come up here that have been, you know, would be interested in, in buying a house up this way? You know, can you, can you call your family and let them know that I have this house for sale? Can, can you can you send them a link to my website and ask them to let their friend and tell their friends about the fact that it's for sale? Let, let's look at it this way. Let's say you go to all 16, uh, uh, 16 of your neighbors, and ten of them actually tell somebody. And uh, out of those ten, five make a step of telling a few other people. Right? Let's say they tell five. Well, you know that's. Um, 35 people taking a look and talking about this place that's really unique and different that may just trip somebody over the line of wanting to see it I mean that's another way it, it's not a conventional thing definitely you're not going to get people driving by and seeing a for sale sign on a daily basis right you, you're not getting uh, traffic from like the multiple listings is what we call it here I don't know what they, they call it there so you got to be creative like that those are some of the things I would do I talk to every neighbor uh, and I would try to, to link up with – it's going to be hard at first because the type of agents I'm talking about, you know, the people that are selling million-dollar nut properties, generally are not that interested. But what they're always looking to do is they're looking to ingratiate themselves with their, with their, uh, with their contemporaries and with their clients. And if they can scratch an itch for somebody, they want to do it. And I'm telling you, that's – that's the kind of place that a guy that, you know, he lives in a two and a half million dollar flat in town that wants a getaway place that, that says, yeah, here, here's a check. I, I want to add, you know, I got financing, here's my down payment. I want to add that to my portfolio. I want to have that for my kids to go out and hang out in. That, that's kind of the approach I'd look. Those, those two main things, kind of word of mouth in two different sectors. Let's take another one. So anyway, this uh, next one here comes for uh, comes to to me from Stephen Harris himself, 
It's just a, a quick little uh, email with a link, and it's to a story on CNBC uh, about a recent change by YouTube uh, blocking ads on channels with less than 10,000 views. Rather than read it, there's a video on the uh, on the page that basically is the lady reading the article. So I'll let you hear it straight from the uh, the source's mouth, so to speak, and I'll come back with my thoughts on it and why it's really not that big a deal at all. YouTube announcing steps which it says will protect its creators. The changes seem designed to protect advertisers from being placed next to offensive content, an issue that's, that drove an advertiser boycott of YouTube. YouTube announcing that it will no longer serve ads on YouTube partner program creators' videos until the channel reaches 10,000 lifetime views. A new threshold, which YouTube says gives them enough information to determine the validity of a channel and whether the channel follows community guidelines and advertiser policies. YouTube also announcing a new review process for new creators applying to be in the YouTube Partner Program, which allows them to share ad revenue. Kelly? How big a deal is this, Julia? It seems like a big shift, but put that 10,000 number in context if you can. Well, I think the key thing here is that YouTube wants to make sure that it can keep on encouraging creators to put their best content on YouTube. There's so many other platforms now to share content, including Facebook. So in order to do that, YouTube needs to make sure that advertisers are not boycotting. So to do that, they're going to just sort of set a new threshold level. I mean, if you have a video that makes 10,000 views or a channel that makes 10,000 views, um, that's sort of at the beginning point from where you could start making significant Um, money below that is probably not going to be a significant money generator anyways and youtube is basically saying it's not going to let people with fewer than 10,000 views generate any revenue because it's not worth it um because of the potential risk that they are doing something offensive or extremist yeah and they might know a little bit more as those people grow put out more content got it okay so this is an example where even the most modestly informed Mainstream media journalists can still be right. Right. Yes, I said right. She's correct. It would have taken very little effort or journalistic ability for her to determine exactly how much, you know, uh, a person would miss out on and not getting paid if they got an ad on every single view for their first 10,000 views. The answer would be between 20 and 27 dollars. And her lack of informational gathering skills is also when she says, you know, the word to start making significant income. Um, if you are playing around in that number of views, you are not making significant income. There is no significant income in me- when you're measuring views in 10,000 views. If you're getting 10,000 views a day uh, on all your videos, then you can make about 20 to 27 dollars. I don't even consider that significant income. That is not enough income to replace a 40 hour a week minimum wage job. It is nice YouTube money. I mean, if you're not trying to be a main, you know, like you're not trying to make YouTube a major income source, if you just, you have your hobby and you video it and you can make 20 bucks a day from YouTube, to tell you the truth, you're doing better than I do. That's great. Go for it. But it's not the kind of money that people are really worried about. Um, I do think they are also right in, in, in their moderately informed way that this actually is a move by YouTube to protect their creators and not to protect YouTube itself, or actually Google, we should say here. And again, I'm not an apologist for these people, but they just had you know $170 million threatened boycott. And 
some of it is bullshit with these these social justice warrior minded companies, these idiots. Um, but some of it's legitimate. I mean, some of the stuff people are putting on YouTube, I wouldn't want my brand associated with it. You know, I wouldn't want you know the Survival Podcast has sponsored this video on some of the, these hateful and racist, in some places not either, just stupid videos. I don't, I don't want anybody to think of me related to that. So I, I understand why these advertisers... And again, as I said, whether I agree with an advertiser or not, if something being wrong, let's say like the advertiser is anti-gun, so they don't want their ads on any gun-related content, whether I agree with that or not, I, I, I still support that advertiser's right to say, if I'm going to spend my money to promote my business, I don't want my brand associated with this redneck hippie duck farmer that's out with his gun shooting a coyote. Fine, don't. That's That's fine. I don't want that sponsor forced to advertise on my videos either, especially if I can pull some bullshit and get some kind of viral activity going with it and get a million views on it, and I've, I've disposed of a big portion of their, their uh, ad money. So by saying, listen, we're not just going to let any Tom, Dick, or Harry show up, set up a channel, turn on you know advertising, and have ads on their channel the next day. they, they got to be able to get at least 10,000 views first. I think that's totally reasonable. Uh, and, and I wouldn't even worry about monetizing my videos until I understand that's not 10,000. That's not 10,000 views on a video. That's what I have to put up my video and I get paid on my 10,000 and one view, unless I only have one video, which is not a content creator in my opinion. What it means is your channel has to have 10,000 views. So I have a lot of videos that have 800 views, 2000 views, 3000 views, but my channel has like 5 million views or something like that. So that kind of puts it in perspective. And, and I don't make a lot of money with YouTube monetization. I just don't. Because it's such a small payout. It's about, on average, it's two-tenths of a cent per view. Two-tenths. Two-tenths. So 10 views is two cents. Two cents. 100 views... 20 cents. It's, it's, it's just not what people think it is. So this is, this is probably a smart decision by Google to be able to say, you know, when somebody's got 10,000 views, they have enough content that we can have somebody look at it, like just some intern or something at Google. Guy applies to, for, to be a, spawn, you know, a partner, and they look at it and go, okay, yeah, he's not, he's not murdering cats. You know, he, he's... he's He, he's not throwing kittens into fans or something like that, you know, and we'll approve them. And I think, with the, like I said, they see, again, modestly informed mainstream media is still sometimes right with their intuition, probably because they don't, they know so little, they have to use their intuition for a change here. Um, YouTube knows that what keeps them really going is the creators. And that the reason I'm more likely to take my awesome viral video and put it on YouTube versus Facebook, or put it on YouTube and then use Facebook to promote it rather than just put it on Facebook, is if I put a video on Facebook and I get 90 million views, I get the square root of F all in return for it. I get nothing from Facebook for doing that. Nothing. They don't give me anything. Now, if it's somehow promoting my business or my page or something, it could have a secondary effect that's worth doing. But if I put a video on YouTube and get 90 million views, even at two cents per 10 views, 
I have a really good thing going, don't I? So that's their gravy. That keeps the content providers motivated. And so they want to do that. They're trying to make everybody happy, and you know that's impossible to do. No matter what you're going to do, you're going to piss some people off. But I've been saying this for a while. I think YouTube is moving much more to a paid subscriber model. And what content creators need to remember on YouTube, you are not YouTube's customer. The viewer is. The viewer is the customer. And when the viewer starts paying money, so right now they have the viewer and the advertiser. And the advertisers spend a lot more money than the viewers. So not only is the viewer not the customer in their eyes, or a secondary customer, and the creator is a secondary customer. The primary customer is the brands that go, yeah, we have a million-dollar-year budget for YouTube here. Have one of your specialists just set up our advertising for us. Okay? That's, that's who their customer is. When they get to a model where they have enough paying subscribers for YouTube Red that YouTube Red is a multi-billion dollar business, and it will be, then who becomes the primary customer? The advertiser, the subscriber, or the content creator? The answer is the subscriber. So you're always going to play second fiddle. There is no way in that model you ever become first fiddle with YouTube Google. So you have to, if that's your, if that's a big part of your business is YouTube videos, you have to have other sources of revenue or other things that those videos are doing for you. Pushing people to your site, converting them to some other type of customer where you have the direct relationship. Because the other thing with YouTube, you never have a direct relationship with your subscribers until you or they take a second step. Let's take another one. All right, so this next one is just more overreached by the state as if we needed more. This is from Rob in Michigan. He says, licensing needed because of, quote, Big Kennel. It's on Reason Magazine. Um, the title of this article is Colorado's Absurd War on Online Dog Walking Services. How Big Government and Big Kennel are Conspiring Against the Sharing Economy. In over 10,000 cities and 50 states, the online platform Rover offers pen owners the ability to connect with walkers and sitters with the ease that characterizes the growing sharing economy. There are over 100,000 people who earn money by working with the platform, and Rover is just one of many pet sharing sites. But according to the Colorado government, people who watch pets for money are breaking the law unless they can get a license as a commercial kennel, a requirement that is costly and unrealistic for people working out of their homes, often as a side job. This is not simply a case of outdated law failing to accommodate modern technology. There are more nefarious motives and those of special interests who want to protect their profits by keeping out new competition. As Americans for Tax Reform's John Carrich argues, it's time to add Big Kennel to the list of special interests that support ridiculous occupational licensing schemes. Lisa Jacobs, ex Jacobson experienced the wrath of the kennel industry and its defenders and government firsthand. She started working with Rover a little over a year ago when she was between careers. Even though Jacobson is a single mother of two, she could earn money to pay for her mortgage through work she found through Rover. Even though Jacobson is a single mother of two, she could earn money to pay her mortgage through the work she found with Rover because of her five-star rating and unique skills. Jacobson was soon at the top of the search results, and her client list grew. Unfortunately, her success attracted the attention of a large commercial kennel in Colorado Springs, which filed a complaint against her. Then an inspector from the Colorado Department of Agriculture came to her home and told Jacobson that she was advertising pit setting without a kennel license. 
The inspector said that Jacobson had to get a state license or take down your rover profile. When Jacobson found out the license came with a $400 non-refundable application fee, she was torn. There was no way her home would be approved, since both carpet and hardwood floors are not allowed at commercial kennels. But she needed the income to support herself and her children. She decided to avoid legal trouble and took down her profile. In a single day, she lost all her income from Rover simply because state regulators refused to recognize that watching someone's pet at home does not automatically turn a person into a large-scale kennel business. After the initial shock of being shaken down by government bureaucrats subsidized, Jacobson decided to fight back. She joined others in testifying in favor of House Bill 1228, an effort Colorado state legislators to restore some sanity to pet-sharing regulations that is sponsored by Representative Louis Lundgraf, Representative Dan Pardon, and Senator Kevin Piroa. There's Democrats and Republicans on that list, by the way. This legislation would create a less costly and restrictive licensing structure for platforms such as Rover, as well as allowing people to watch up to three pets without needing a license. Uh, I guess it would be three pets at any time. Even though hearings on the bill were dominated by opponents from the commercial kennel industry, it passed the Colorado Senate uh, on April 27 by a vote of 33 to 1 and is now on the way to Governor John Hickup, Hickenlooper's desk. Okay, so people would say, well, what's the problem? Uh, they're, they're, they're making another tier, and you can read the rest of the article if you want. There's a link in the show notes. They're making another tier for these people. They're being reasonable. How about this? How about a person that keeps you know four or five dogs at their house at one time, so not running a commercial kennel? How about you just don't do anything? You just tell people like these big kennel companies, you, do, you don't get to go after these people. Well, you can't do that because, see, they're, they have, they, the only reason this is, this is happening okay, is... Uh, And, and, and getting some kind of reasonable treatment is that there is no big kennel lobby. Like, they're just not that big. They're just not that big. So they don't have the resources to really come out and fight something that's so stupid. But this is very similar to daycare. My niece, um, who has a degree in psychology, by the way, and uh, so she's very good with children, um, Not because of the degree, because she has a degree and the natural talent, by the way. Um, had at one point started babysitting. And uh, she was going, she was finishing up her master's degree and she was doing it through distance education because um, she's not stupid and didn't want to ruin her life to get a piece of paper. So she had a lot of time at home. So she started watching one kid and then the one mother loved the way that she was doing it. So she told her next door neighbor and next thing you know, that next door neighbor had her with two of her kids. And she ended up with about six kids that she was looking after during the week. And everybody loved her and everybody was happy except somebody who's never happy, which is her current husband's ex-wife who's just a bitch. And so she dropped a dime on him and called the state and said, hey, they're running an illegal daycare, and they, come in, they came in and shut her down. Now, she was making a nice income. Parents were getting a service for a price they could actually afford, unlike true daycare. The kids were getting much better care than they're going to get at a licensed daycare facility. Uh, they were getting very personal care in a very small group where everybody could be looked after and things could be controlled. And if any one of the kids had become a problem, then Brandy would have just said, hey, go away. Get out of here. You're not allowed to be here no more. Take, you know, there would have been no problems because of something like a disruptive child. No, no sense of obligation that you're obligated to take care of my kid. But the state shut it down for the same reason. And what this comes down to is the state gets involved in the first place. 
And the state says, if you, and we think it's reasonable because we're, we're fooled into believing it. That, well, if you're going to run a daycare facility, then here's all the things you have to do. If you're going to run a dog kennel, here's all the things that you have to do. And if you don't do those things, then you can't run it. And we need to make sure you're running it so you have to pay a fee so that our inspectors can make sure you're doing it. This all sounds perfectly reasonable to the average person, except if you went to a, a, a dog kennel, and that dog kennel looked like a place that you didn't want your animal to be, would you choose to leave your dog there? And the answer is no, not if you have a brain. And no amount of state licensing would make you think, well, even though this looks wrong, I'm going to leave my dog there if you actually care about your dog. And this sharing economy is so much more powerful. See, here's what's happened. People have been dog-sitting forever. And, and the way I read this, it only applies where I take your dog to my house. That, that's where this applies. So me walking your dog, it's not affected by this particular thing. God knows what will come up with that. Um, and if the, the, I come stay at your house and take care of your dogs, th this wasn't an issue. The issue was, hey, what if I come get your dog or you bring your dog to my house and I keep your dog at my house? Like I foster your dog for a week is the way you think about it in animal rescue. The same thing, right? Of course, the, you notice that All this bullshit about, hey, we got to have inspections. We can't have carpet and wood floors. Oh, there's people out there fostering 10 dogs at one time. No one gives a shit. You know why? Because the kennel, because these, these, uh, these kennel operators, they can't make money, money on that. I'll bet you if the state, because the state always screws shit up, right? Let's say the state came out with a problem called save a pup. And what they said is, if you take a dog into your home and take care of them, like a foster parent, We'll give you $10 a day. Then the kennel companies would turn around and go, hey, 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 they're not licensed. We want that $10 a day. We'll give you all our unused inventory, and we'll be doing it as a public service for half rate or some shit like that. And it's, it's not the business's fault. The business has been strong-armed by the government and said, you have to do all this stuff. Now a competitor is showing up who doesn't. And what happened is Rover made it scalable. If I started up Jack's Pup Care here at my at my little farm, and you came out here and I said, "Well, you got I got to introduce your dogs to my dogs, make sure you're going to get along." And your dogs came out, and they, you know we introduced them to Charlie first because he's the dominant dog, and everything seems fine. And I said, "Hey, you know what? Yeah, I'll take your dog, and you're going to want your vacations, twenty bucks a day. I'll take care of your dog. No kennel in the world could provide your dog what I provide your dog. They're going to be running with three other dogs or four or five other dogs, depending on how many stay in here." I can't do it because of the ducks, but let's say I didn't have ducks. They got three acres to run around on. You know? They got people that just love them. And that's what people are doing. People that love animals are doing this. You don't do this just to earn money. You do this because you, because it's not that much money. I looked in my area. People are house sitting for $20 a night. So that's when they come stay at your house. They're taking dogs in for $20 a day. But you take in five dogs, it's 100 bucks a day. Seven days a week, $700 a week. Not a bad income for somebody to take care of dogs. So all of a sudden it's scalable. All of a sudden anybody can do it. But what about making sure they're taking good care of the animals? So I went to Rover and I put my zip code in. And I said, you know, if I had somebody come here and take care of my animals, how many people are there? A couple dozen popped right up, close by, willing to take care of my dogs. Reviews. Best guy on the list, some dude named Curtis. He's got 14 repeat customers. 20 reviews, all five stars. 
people say, you know, like when they're away on vacation, he sends them a couple texts every every day with pictures of their animals, making sure they're happy and all. Hey, you know what? I trust Curtis already, right now, more than I trust the facility because the state of Texas said I can. And they're scared. And you know, they're taking a shot at calling them Big Kennel. And like I said, the reason this looks like it got fast-tracked through the Colorado legislature is they didn't want to look stupid. But look what look what has not happened. The, the Colorado legislator hasn't said, hey, you know, if, if you're taking care of up to five kids in your home, it's babysitting. It's it's not it's not daycare. And by the way, um, if uh, it, maybe if the house is capable of it, you know, they, 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 they take care of ten kids. And it provides a low-cost solution for many working families. This is good for everybody. Let's come up with some kind of a, 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 a abbreviated background check and some kind of second-tier licensing for people, you know, uh, in a certain number, up to a certain number, because that's good too. Why not? Because of what I said. See, the state does provide funding to parents for daycare. They don't call it that, but there's funding provided by the state. Uh, for a lot of people, and some of that funding gets used for daycare. There's a lot more money. There's a lot more money in daycare than there is in doggy daycare. A lot more. A lot more. So that industry's bigger. That industry does have state level lobbyists. So no reason can ever come to the situation because it's all about money. And this is what government does over and over and over. By creating complex regulations, you would think the companies being regulated would be the first to want those regulations repealed. But no, once they adapt to those regulations, they see the regulations as a good thing, not because they think it makes their customer served better, not because they think it makes the marketplace safer, because it makes the monopoly easier for them to maintain. But here's what all of these companies need to understand. Your days are done. In so many ways, your days are done. We've just started to see how this is going to come down. When we think of things, you know, like Swarm City, Swarm City is going to be impossible to be policed this way. Because the people that are trying to do the policing aren't even going to understand it. They're going to be paid in tokens on an internet app. With, I mean, it, 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 it just, you can't stop it. You can't stop it. And every time they go beat up on a few people like this, some other technology will be developed around it. And it's just going to continue and continue and continue. And that's just the way that it's going to be. And it is the sharing economy. It is, it is the point where what's really being obsoleted in many instances is the employer. The employer is the one that's being obsoleted. Where everybody works for themselves and nobody needs a boss. Decentralized autonomous organizations. DAOs. That's what's coming. Why do I need a boss to make sure I go take care of dogs when taking care of dogs is what I want to do? And people want to pay me to do it. So now the, 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 the relationship, the transaction is individualized. And I'm telling you, again, when we marry that to the developments in cryptocurrencies... We, we have a development of inherent trust monitoring. Uh, I re- listened to a really great speaker on the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network recently. I'll see if I can find the, the one and link to it from the show notes today. But this guy, it, it's like a podcast, but it's really not. It's a guy speaking at an event. They recorded it and they broadcasted it as a podcast. He said, if I, went, if I could go back in time to when Bitcoin was developed, I wouldn't have called it Bitcoin. Not that there's anything wrong with Bitcoin. It's a fine name. 
but what I would have called it is trust net. Because it allows parties who've never met to do business with an inherent trust of each other because the technology works. Well, when we add the blockchain and blockchain-like technologies to that, we can develop trust reputations. And that's what Rover's doing with simple reviews. But these new evolutions are going to take those trust-based reputations to a higher level with greater dependability, greater verifiability, and much more difficult to fake. It will become much more difficult to fake because there, there's going to have to be a transaction for the review to occur. You know, Amazon's doing this, you know, verified purchases on their reviews now. So when the reviewer does a review and Amazon has a, a customer service record, they say it's a verified purchase. And, and it's, it's kind of taking that to the next level where the action itself generates the trust. So even if I don't leave you a review, If I delivered service and you paid for it, that creates a trust token. That's what Swarm City is. You must have been happy. You paid them. And if you went back and did it again, maybe it creates a special trust token that's a repeat trust token. Not only did you do business with them once, you went and did business with them again. And, and what people want to say is, well, you know, I do business sometimes with companies I don't want to do business with because they're the only option I have. Not anymore! The world is changing! Do you understand that? Not anymore. Because you'll be able to find dozens of options for anything you need done. The days of employing people in large scales are beginning to die. What do you need? Here's how you get it done. Because you ask any entrepreneur, what do you, do you really want a company with a thousand employees? No, I want the result of a company with a thousand good employees. I want the result. What's the result? The result is this product at this price point penetrated into this market that makes this profit and that delivers this level of service and quality to the people that want to buy it. That's the result. That's what I want. Okay. That if we can do it with no employees, will that work for you? Say more things like that. Say more things like that. That's, that's what you get from an entrepreneur. So there you go. That's my thoughts on that one. Check the article out. And uh, I would say this. In spite of the fact that it's being attacked, a lot of you want a side hustle? Gee, check out Rover. I didn't even know about that site until this came up. What a great idea. So next up, I want to talk to you about today's Amazon item of the day. I'm not going to talk a lot about this one today because it's one that you've seen come up twice this year already. The first time it came up, it, it was really well received, but it sold out. It was so popular, not just among you guys, but I think on Amazon as a whole, it sold out. So I brought it back when it came back, because a lot of you had written me and said, I can't get it. Is there a better one? And I, I said, I didn't really think I could find a better one. Um, and now they've dropped the price. And this is the example of how the market works. When a supplier puts out a product and it sells really, really well, you'd think the natural response would be for the price to go up. With economy of scale, once they get to a certain point, they're able to drop the price so they can move more product. And they can sell for less because they're able to produce for less. And this product is the King, Kingbo Reflector 45-watt LED grow light. Um, the, the original price point on this was over $40. Bucks. It came down into the high 30s. It's now $29 a light. For a 45-watt full-spectrum LED grow light, are you kidding me? These things generate almost no heat, and where they do generate some heat's out the back, so your plants can go right up to them, and they doesn't burn plants. Don't look into this, you know, don't look into it. 
It'll, it'll, it's, it's, it's bad for your eyes to look into these things. Uh, so you don't want to look directly into the light on these things. Um, but for those of you looking to start plants, grow plants inside, uh, build indoor farms, I mean, these are the best things I've found. Are there ways you can do it cheaper? Yes. Are there ways that you can do it this low of a price point and this good? No. No. They're awesome. And remember, when you, if you want to see the item of the day, go to tspaz.com. There's a link you can click. You see all the items of the day. There's another link. If you click that link, it just takes you over to Amazon for the deals of the day. If you like this show and the work that we do, when you're going to buy something on Amazon today, tomorrow, next week, next year, whenever it is, even if it has nothing to do with the items we're reviewing, if you'll go to tspaz.com first and click that link, get on over to Amazon that way, um, and then just buy your stuff, you'll be supporting our work as the affiliate that referred you to Amazon. So please consider doing that for us uh, if you like the show and the work that we do. That brings us up to our song of the day. What a great song today. Uh, I always like this song to begin with. And um, it really fits today since we have such a stupid story out of California. And, of course, our song of the day is from the year 1999 because the episode's 1999 today. The song is called Californication. And uh, here's what John Adams says about it. He says, Californication exposes the shallow and selfish thinking in the entertainment industry and of California in general. Being from California, I hate what this state has come to represent in the re to the rest of the country. California is a state in turmoil with open talk of secession, dividing in two, and civil war. People and money are fleeing the state because of the oppressive financial regulations and loss of individual liberties. I just hope California doesn't take any other states with it down the toilet. The activities of state leaders could really be referred to as Californication. Yeah. Um, this song, like I said, I just always liked this song. It's not, I'm not a big, huge Chili Peppers fan, and it's not really my style of music, but I like lots of styles of music. There's even some, believe it or not, there's even some rap music that I like. Very little, but there's even some rap music that I like. This is a good example of one of those songs. It's not my typical wheelhouse, but I really like Um, there's a lot going on in the lyrics of this song. I think a lot of times, this is one of those songs too that people listen to and they merely maybe don't get all the words. So I thought I would read to you, other than the, uh, the chorus, um, the actual lines to this song. So when you hear it this time, maybe it kind of hits a little harder. It says, Psychic spies from China try to steal your mind's elation, and little girls from Sweden dream of silver screen quotation. And if you want these kinds of dreams, it's Californication. It's the edge of the world in all Western civilization. The sun may rise in the east. At least it settles in its final location. It's understood that Hollywood sells Californication. Pay your surgeon very well to break the spell of aging. Celebrity skin, is this your chin? Or is that war you're waging? Firstborn unicorn, hardcore soft porn, dream of Californication. Marry me, girl, be my fairy to the world, be my very own constellation. A teenage bride with a baby inside, getting high on information. And buy me a star on the boulevard, it's Californication. Space may be the final frontier, but it's made in a Hollywood basement. Cobain, can you hear the spheres singing songs off station to station? 
and Alderaan's not far away. It's Californication. Born and raised by those who praise control of population, everybody's been there, and I don't mean on vacation. Destruction leads to a very rough road, but it also breeds creation. And earthquakes are, to a girl's guitar, they're just another good vibration. And tidal waves couldn't save the world from Californication. Pay your surgeon very well to break the spell of aging. Sicker than the rest, there is no test. But this is what you're craving. Firstborn unicorn, hardcore soft porn. Dream of Californication. So, now you can listen to this song maybe a little bit differently than you've ever heard it before. And you can realize this process hasn't stopped and it's sped up. The interesting thing, though, is... John said, I hope it doesn't take any other states down with it. We're all guilty. When I say we all, I don't mean us as individuals. But throughout the country, this is what sells. It's why Hollywood sells it. It's not just it's just not just Hollywood and Vine this stuff comes from. It comes from Madison Avenue, too, because it's what people want to see. It's what people want to hear. People are more worried about somebody's baby bump than where their next meal is really going to come from if something goes wrong. Californication indeed. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.